Hi folks, a very quick announcement before we get started on the episode this week. And that is a huge thank you to Katie Unicorn Stewart. I don't know if your middle name really is Unicorn. If it is, that is an awesome name. So the fabulous Katie Unicorn Stewart gave us a recent review on Apple Podcasts about the recent Governance Summit summary. So five stars for Take On Board, she says. Loved the recent Governance Summit summary podcasts. Super useful. Katie, happy to help. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to do a review. So a little prompt for others that might be listening. I love it when I get reviews and you might get read out on the pod as well. So get in there and work out how to do ratings and reviews and let me know what you think of the pod. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to, I actually think this is the first Take On Board Breakfast event for 2023, even though it's May. Those of you who have read or listened to the podcast late last year would know my word of the year is ease, and maybe that's because I was having a year of ease that we're starting off the first one in May. I'm not sure, or maybe there was an earlier one and I've just forgotten. Anyway, welcome. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. For me, that is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I know people are here from all sorts of different places, both around Australia and possibly outside Australia. Oh, yes, I can say that now because Caitlin's just joined and I know that... She is in Canada. So, yeah, acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land, elders past and present, and I think there are some governance lessons from that custodianship of the lands. You know, if we think about governance as long-term stewardship, then the long-term stewardship of the lands by First Nations people, both here in Australia and in other places, is it a pretty amazing lesson in stewardship. So paying respects to them and just wondering perhaps on those lessons that we can learn from them. So folks, with that, let's get started on the event today. Let me introduce the fabulous Rivka Hagen. So she does all sorts of fantastic work. She is on a board and she is going to share with us today the ins and outs of mergers. Rivka, I'm just going to pass to you and uh, for 20 minutes and then we will do some other stuff later. Rivka, over to you. Thank you so much for the welcome, uh, Helia. Look, these events are always great fun, aren't they? And uh, they've got a casualness about it that is just so welcoming and comforting, especially at this hour of the day. So thanks to everyone for giving up some of these early hours to uh, come and have a chat with me about uh, organisational mergers. So, you know, talking through a little bit more about my background, my professional background is in the health sector. I started out as a laboratory scientist well before my hair was uh, this particular colour and then transferred or you know, sort of transitioned into healthcare management uh, some years later and 
I ended up managing essentially primary care businesses, so general practices, small, medium, large ones and the like. And uh, as I was just sort of explaining in the breakout room as well amongst my group, what got me uh, interested in the field of directorship and knowing more about how sort of organisational governance really works came about because I was curious about a type of healthcare organisation that I was aware of but didn't understand particularly well. And this was the community healthcare space. And so, uh, you know, not really understanding how the funding worked or how that particularly operated, I kind of went, well, gosh, I I guess if I approach the organisation and first of all, see how I could possibly find out more about it, that'd be a really good way for me to be better informed. And that's how I ended up in my first control. And to be perfectly honest, when I started on that committee, I didn't even really get how the committee was related to the board and to the broader organisation. That's literally how green I was at that point in time. But I thought, oh, look, if I can offer some assistance there, then that's a really good thing. So that was kind of the lead into my very first board role. So after the committee, I did end up with a a board position there. And um, what I'm talking about here is COBOL Community Health, which is our local community health here here in uh, sort of central Victoria in the in the Macedon Ranges. So that's how I started out. And I had a really sort of effective board around me to kind of catch me in that early directorship journey. So I had a, a like a blessed introduction to that role of governance. And it was a very safe space for me to learn very quickly about that and be able to kind of get my boots on and and understand more about that. I was elevated into the deputy chair role reasonably quickly after I joined the board. And that's when I thought, okay, this is, look, this is interesting, but I now feel like I need to bolster my credentials. I actually need to do more learning around organisational governance and really uh, get my head around the role of a director and uh, where those delineations lie. So I undertook the AICD company director's course from there on in. I then ended up chairing the board and uh, that is kind of where we land as far as this sort of merger story. So what you can see on your screen here is a little bit about COBOL Community Health. So my first board role, you'll see the pictures there of all of the other community health organisations similarly within Victoria. So there's a number of them. And what COBOL Community Health essentially was, because it's now a merged organisation, It was a small rural community health organisation. So it was sort of around about a $10 million organisation, possibly a little bit less at the outset, a little bit more as sort of time went by. But in community health speak, that's definitely a small organisation. The community health organisation consists of a number of sites, so a number of outreach sites, so lots of sort of small buildings and small service delivery sites within the Macedon Ranges area, and they are mostly governed and or funded through the state government 
in the early days through block funding. So, you know, the organization would get funded to deliver certain types of services to certain types of uh, people, uh, community members and the like, and very much focused on uh, providing care for vulnerable populations. So we're talking about homeless women, families with uh, particular challenges to them, low socioeconomic cohorts. So really, I guess the pointy end of service delivery in not just sort of healthcare, but social services as well. So, um, you know, support for families, for youth and the like. So very broad and quite complex organisations because of the variety of uh, services that they do offer. So the issue became, and this was kind of the leading to why we started on merger conversations, is that as a small organisation, we felt particularly vulnerable to a very definitive push by the state government to fund larger organisations because it's less risky for, for the government. And, you know, we felt that that could end up being sort of an existential threat to the viability of the organisation and mostly not even so much about the organisation, but for the community that we were serving. And this is very much at the heart of why we uh, stuck with this process of looking for merger partners multiple times over because we were wanting to foremost protect the services to the local community. That was very much at the, the heart of this. So it was a very precarious situation that, uh, that we found ourselves in. So on the screen, you can see here what the old Cobalt Community Health Building looked like, the picture on your left there. That was the main site in Kyneton in the main street there. Very old and craggly building with, you know, sort of crumbling walls and the like with, oh gosh, there would have been about 20 little rooms within that building. Very difficult to get around, an absolute horror in COVID times because it was just a very compromised building there. So that's kind of where we started. Then you can see some other pictures there of other sites. So the, the top picture on the right is the, the Wood End site. So that it's a little bit of an outreach service there. And the bottom one is a new addition to the Romsey site. Uh, so there was some funding to expand that out. And we were all sort of, you know, very excited about that. So that's kind of what it looked like. What you can see now on your screen is as part of the merger talks that we had embarked on, we also had funding of about $10 million to rebuild the primary site. So the old craggly building in Kyneton, we got $10 million to find a greenfield site and rebuild. And that's what you're actually seeing here. And that was finished just before COVID hit. So that was another big project that we were working on. This is years in the planning and execution there, but a beautiful new facility that was sort of, you know, part of the uh, COBOL community health deliverable when all was said and done. So that's just for your, your interest there. So the merger background, we basically had sort of three real attempts at merging for those reasons that, uh, that I outlined before. The first attempt, and I, um, I'm going to be careful to sort of you know, not name names in there because there was certainly some sensitivities around how some of these things played out. And this is kind of the reality of what uh, merger situations are like. So the first attempt was with a what we thought was not dissimilar type of healthcare organisation. 
And what we found was that when the due diligence really started and we looked at the business modeling for each entity, we found that there was a significant mismatch between the type of services that we each provided. And the concern became that we wouldn't be able to see the efficiencies of scale that we were looking to achieve as a result of the merger, because, of course, that's one of the very important aspects of this, that you can do more with the resources that you have and um, sort of, you know, share that risk around. So the first attempt was very interesting. We were quite open with the community about what we were looking to do. And there was a lot of transparency around that. And so uh, that's kind of one of the, the learnings out of that, that possibly that was not the best approach. So being sort of very open and transparent then cause some issues. And I'll talk a little bit more about what sort of sat behind that as well. But in essence, we found that when we started looking at, well, what are we each doing, that there was a, a fundamental mismatch that was going to then be risky for each of the merger partners. And as a result of that, it was a very amicable decision to uh, halt that and to pull back to say, I don't think this is going to work for us. So, you know, no hard feelings with any of that. With the second attempt, so we kind of came back and sort of said, okay, is the original imperative for looking for a merger partner still there? And the answer to that was yes, we were still a small organisation and those uh, existential risks were absolutely still so we felt that we needed to continue that search for who is the right partner there. The second attempt was, again, you know, quite a, a big exercise with still a reasonable amount of transparency and public messaging around that, that then uncovered that some of the funding risks that sat with each organisation could mean that we were looking at a viability risk altogether that was of significant concern. And, you know, we were talking uh, sort of in the order of about $30 million worth of risk that sort of sat behind that. So that's a significant amount that needed to be seriously addressed. So that was sort of the first big hiccup with that one. What we found too, though, along with that sort of more robust due diligence process that was undertaken, we actually found that there were also some cultural misalignments between the two organisations that became quite significant down the track as well. So that actually felt, I guess, a lot more compromised and difficult. I think one of the lessons out of that was that that cultural misalignment wasn't picked up until a fair whack down the track of doing due diligence. And you might think, well, gosh, if you're going to undertake a merger activity, wouldn't that be the first thing that you're looking at? And the answer to that is, yeah, absolutely, you do. But what you see and what you uncover through a due diligence process is possibly not always what sits behind the scenes. So actually finding the truth of what sort of sits behind that 
can be more difficult to uncover than just saying, well, tell me about your culture and, you know, how does all of that play out? So actually finding out about that can be notoriously difficult. And that was what we found there. Absolutely interesting, but that was quite a challenging environment to work through and to do that in a way that sort of felt comfortable for each of these possible merger partners. There was another attempt or, you know, I guess an an early contemplation that I haven't sort of really listed as a full-fledged attempt because this one was far more casual in that the recognition that this was not likely to be a suitable partner, that realisation came much earlier. And so there was certainly nowhere near the kind of public messaging or messaging out to the broader organisations about this. We kind of worked a lot more in a stealth mode for that very early contemplation that didn't uh, really go anywhere. And uh, we really didn't feel that even with this particular contemplation that the merged entity would be any better protected from that existential threat than what COBOL Community Health was in itself. That contemplation was parked reasonably quickly. And so then we came to the third attempt, which, hey, finally we managed to land it, was with uh, Sunbury Community Health. And that was in uh, 2018. And that ended up being a successful merger. So all of the lessons from previous attempts, which really did skill us up as a board very significantly to very closely understand what do we need to look at? What are the absolute must-haves? What are the breaking points? And how's this going to go forward? We had a maturity at that stage that was, you know, really helpful to feel very confident that this was going to be a successful merger. And that's indeed uh, what did happen. So what did we learn about mergers? Well, we learned that they're actually really, really hard to do. And I certainly don't back away from that. As I've said before, the rationale for merging remained solid throughout. So the ultimate, why are we doing this? That needs to be very well understood and articulated. And you need to keep coming back to that as you do with sort of, you know, any uh, solid planning to be able to have comfort in how your journey is going to map out. What we also learned is that uh, it's very helpful to have good confidence about the success of a merger before you make public declarations. And that is probably something that if we had our time again, we would be far more quiet about what we're trying to do. But, you know, we came from a community health background where transparency and openness of communication was really, really important to us. But it did bite us on the bum a few times over. So that's something that we learned, that having quiet conversations and being very careful about your public messaging until you have really good confidence is a really good thing to do. We also learned that the cultural alignment of merger organisations is absolutely crucial. If that cultural alignment isn't there, the merger is not going to uh, land successfully. It's going to be extremely difficult with a lot more pain along the way as well. 
We also learned that the willingness of the executive and leadership team is absolutely required in order to play this out. We also understood that the leadership team, the operational team, has a great power in being able to both support or derail any type of merger attempts. So early conversations around, you know, how's everyone feeling in the room is extremely important to understand where your problems are going to possibly come from when you're having these conversations. And we were very fortunate that our CEO at the time was working towards retirement. And so the notion of a merger was very comfortable to the CEO. And that was part of the reason why we were able to maintain good positive momentum over three merger attempts without the CEO having hissy fit and going, I'm, I'm out of here. So I think that was really important too, that the leadership team is broadly in agreement with the, the journey that you are going on. We also learned that not everybody, despite these sort of feelings of goodwill, is going to be on board and you need to be very aware of the underlying sentiments that might be simmering underneath the surface. They are difficult to sometimes pick up, but they will be there. So you need to have your eyes and ears open to what that might look like. Definitely compromises are required from uh, both merger partners. So it's not sort of a, a zero-sum game. Everybody needs to get some wins out of this merger proposal. Otherwise, it's going to leave some feeling very flat. And of course, if you have a, a merger attempt or a merger proposition of equal partners in terms of size and especially revenue, then you need to work very carefully about what does the merger actually mean? Are we talking about a takeover or a true merger? And that is particularly the case too, of course, where you have a, a mismatch between especially the revenue base. And that was certainly the case with Sunbury Community Health, who was a much larger organisation than COBOR was at the outset. So we had comfort that it possibly was more of a takeover type of arrangement than necessarily a merger. And we were comfortable with that because, coming back to the why, we knew that that was going to be the pathway to ensure continuity of service for a vulnerable population. So there were really no egos in that room. And, you know, we were quite comfortable with that. But that's not going to be the case with every type of merger that you might be able to, uh, to contemplate. It's, it's going to be very unique to every circumstance. Also, we found that the corporate identity of each of the merger partners needs to be acknowledged and maintained in some way. And what you're seeing on the slide here too is how that corporate identity was maintained in the messaging and the renaming of the new organisation, which in our case became the Sunbury Cobalt Community Health. You can see the colours of the original Sunbury Community Health Board and the colours of Cobalt Community Health were maintained in the new entity. And they're all really you know, quite really important messages to send out to both staff and to clients, patients, that we're still going to be here uh, for the community. What we did particularly well is that commitment to the why we were doing that. 
the continued focus on the business as usual function of the organization that was difficult through multiple merger attempts and keeping the leadership and the operational teams focused on the delivery of core services whilst this unsettling activity takes place in the background. We also didn't allow the unsuccessful attempts to throw us off course. We stuck true to that why. And we certainly became quite expert at what due diligence is all about. We had some fantastic frameworks that we carried forward into new merger discussions that continue to grow and become better every time we went through this. It still sounds quite painful to kind of express that. But we did find that uh, the journey mapping after the successful merger has been announced, the what comes after is even more important than actually landing on the merger. So what happens after that decision is made is absolutely massive and needs a lot of attention. In fact, the true work only begins once that agreement is actually reached. It's, it's really, really big. So as I indicated too, our CEO's preparation for retirement was extremely helpful in not derailing uh, the processes. And, you know, we had really effective handover processes too. So our CEO headed off into retirement, spent time with the merged organization to provide that handover to the new leadership team to make that feel comfortable. That was blessed. We also had a couple of COBOL community health board members transition to the new organization. I wasn't part of that. By that time, I had been on the board for six years and felt that that was absolutely the right time to, to step back from that. So some of the things that didn't go quite so well was, as I said, our early belief in transparency going back, I wouldn't recommend that going forward. I'd be a whole lot more cagey and be quiet about that because it does cause consternation, especially amongst the staff of organisations, to know that this is what you're thinking and where you're heading can cause some real issues there. So that's that's very real and needs to be kept in mind. One of the particular challenges for COBOL Community Health was our constitution. It required our members and the members were basically anyone who lives within the community who wants to be part of our organisation could become members of COBOL Community Health. So we had about 100 members. That's a lot. And we required 75% approval for the merger to be able to take place. So that was one of the big communication pieces to get that 75% across the line once we were ready to put that to the vote. And so we had quite a number of sleepless nights wondering whether we were actually going to be able to make that work. And another recommendation coming out of this, and I haven't spoken a great deal about that, is the separation of the boards until the merger is complete is absolutely crucial. And I say that because on one of the attempts that we worked on, we actually uh, had some of the directors of COBOL join the board of the attempted merger partner. And in hindsight, that was a, a poor decision to make because it becomes very conflicted because, of course, you know, when you're sitting on, on two different boards, then you are serving two different masters. Communication becomes very difficult in bringing confidence around what might happen going forward. So the conflict of interest there was very problematic. It did, however, 
give a broader insight into some of the cultural issues that became problematic. So it was helpful in that way, but it's not to be recommended. I think maintaining board separation until the deed is done is very, very important. And I'm mindful that I'm still being a little cagey there and and, uh, that's uh, obviously deliberate there. So just a couple of last thoughts there from the idea of, oh my gosh, we might be facing an existential threat to we are now merged. That was years. We're talking, you know, probably six, seven years. It actually started even before I came on board here. The impact on the operational team is absolutely immense. So that uh, that has to maintain a really solid focus throughout these kinds of contemplations. We also found that we needed to create new roles to actually support the merger. So once it's signed off on, you actually need to throw resources at helping to make that transition a reality and to support that new environment from both organisations' points of view. The development of a uh, an implementation and communications plan is absolutely crucial. That's a big piece of work. The comms around that and the operational alignment and realignment is a huge amount of work. So again, depending on the type of organization that you sit on and what kind of merger you are contemplating, you can just imagine how immense that actually is. And, you know, allowing that space for grief, because even when everybody is ready for the move, It is a a big change. And um, I actually experienced that grief myself too in saying goodbye to an organisation and, you know, understanding the impact, especially on staff who are not coming along on that journey is real. And so that recognition of that um, is, is really important. And for me, I felt that mostly at the time that this picture was taken. So you'll see our Premier there in the background and our current State Health Minister, Marianne Thomas, standing next to him as well. At the official opening of the new home for Cobol Community Health, which actually happened after the merger was complete. And you know, the building was built, it was finished during COVID, we couldn't really transition and celebrate that because of COVID. So when all was said and done, this was kind of late to the party. And the original team, and you can see standing next to me is Margaret McDonald, our old CEO, who's since retired. And we came to celebrate the new building opening and that sense of grief of, oh my gosh, this is now kind of not ours anymore. That was real and it was tangible, very lovely to catch up with everybody, to be able to wrap that up and and finish that off. So again, just remembering that uh, the emotional impact of these moves are absolutely tangible and real for many people associated with the organisation. And uh, that's you know probably all we've got time for in a very quick overview. And I'd love to uh, to see your questions. You you may well have things that you would like to throw at me. And uh, very yeah very happy to have that conversation too. Fabulous. Thanks, Rivka. Okay, I can see questions have already started coming in Slido. Double thumbs up. So here's how we'll do this. I will 
keep an eye on Slido and I'm going to call, if there's names there, I'm going to call on people to ask their questions. So if you can say your name and what boards you're on, if any. So the first two questions here I think are connected. So Carolyn, you've got a question about cultural due diligence and then Serena, I might get you to add anything in there as well because they're both questions about due diligence. So Carolyn, do you want to ask your question and then Serena, if you can follow up on that and then we'll hear Rivka's thoughts on it. Carolyn, where are you? Oh, there you are. Yes. Uh, okay, I'm Carolyn Grant from Google Plus Science and 6Ps. I don't sit on boards. I do a psychological safety and wellbeing uh, assessment of boards and work as advisory. So advisories to boards and with boards. Thank you so much. That was an absolutely sensational talk in those times. Those last three slides are absolutely brilliant. So the question was what cultural due diligence was done to identify those deeper cultural issues and can you go into a bit more detail? And I think you did a little bit in terms of understanding what some of those board, when you got into the board, but I think that's a more detail would be wonderful. Thank you. Before you start, Rivka, I'll just get Serena to follow up as well because hers was also about due diligence. So Serena, if you can introduce yourself and add. Sure. Yep, Serena Lillywhite. I'm currently on a, a governance advisory board with Federal Treasury. And my quest follow-up aspect is what sort of due diligence beyond, I guess, the legal, financial, fiscal due diligence was being done? So, you know, were you looking, for example, at whether the organisations had, you know, what sort of policies and practices they had in place in terms of human rights or child safety or anti-bribery, anti-corruption, had they been caught up previously in any poor financial reporting? What was their donor history like? So I guess, yeah, some of those other aspects that might sit alongside and behind to really help you try and find out what is really going on because the experience I've had is it's, as you touched on, Ritka, is you don't find it all out until it's done and dusted. <laughs> yeah, look, it's it's a great question, great questions from, um, from both of you, so, so thank you for that. Look, you're quite right, and so all of the, the bits that you just mentioned there, Serena, were part of the original due diligence case, I guess, it goes well beyond the sort of, you know, the financial performance. Uh, to be honest, you know, that the financials and the service delivery metrics, they're the easy bits, right? Because they're numbers, they don't lie, and it's easy to, uh, to see what that kind of looks like. But the real work goes into much more of that uh, intangible due diligence, which is very much around how do people work in these organisations, and that is difficult to get a very strong sense of. So some of the other things that we looked at was, you know, surveys. As part of community health, there is a requirement to, to do workforce surveys and, you know, community uh, consumer feedback surveys as well. So we absolutely looked at those metrics as well to give us a little bit of a sense of how the workplace is being perceived, as well as, you know, what are our clients' views on the services that are being delivered. Being mindful that even those types of metrics they don't tell the full story either. So it's just part of putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So what you're really looking for is the congruency between the stories and that are being told, the documentation that you're seeing, 
and the temperature check, I guess, that you undertake. So as more of the due diligence was taking place and we were having a lot of interaction between the executive and leadership teams of both organisations, there is more intel that comes through from how those processes are actually playing out on the ground. So even just undertaking that due diligence process, there is a, a feeling and a sentiment that will sit behind that that tells you something, whether it's positive or negative, it does inform where are we at and, and how are we feeling. And so it's actually really difficult to put a determined metric around that, but they are very important aspects to be aware of. And so the ability to listen to that sort of feedback coming into the due diligence is really important. So I guess you're reading between the lines, right? It is not just what are we seeing on paper? What are the bits that are giving us absolute confidence that, you know, the organization is a going concern? They're, you know, they're not going bankrupt. They're not sort of, you know, trading insolvent or, you know, any of those sorts of things. So where perhaps our view of uh, cultural alignment might have been initially been quite positive and was then skewed, really set around a better understanding of how especially the board CEO uh, dynamic was actually playing out. And it was when that was directly observed that that became very problematic. And so I guess I can probably best describe it in terms of, you know, our own perception of our own board. So this was the COBOL board and CEO type of role where we had a complete transparency around what we were doing. We were all aligned with what we were looking to achieve and the role of the board in terms of, you know, setting strategy and giving direction to the CEO was kind of playing out in that traditional view of what that delineation of accountability and responsibility kind of looks like, which is, you know, the nose in, hands out kind of approach. That was how we operated. And what we found with one of the, the merger attempts was that that was kind of flipped on its head, where in fact, it was the CEO driving the board and having far greater control over that than what we had comfort with and what we were used to. And that did not come out until it was seen in action. So even though I'm saying you really don't want to intermingle your directors across two organisations because it's conflicted and it's very difficult, we did feel that in terms of ensuring the strength of the organisation by having appropriate governance structures in place, that that was actually a really big part of our non-negotiables, that that was actually compromised. Um, so I hope that gives sort of enough insight into what that culture looks like. But yeah, you know, culture is kind of difficult all around, isn't it? We know what good culture is when we are in it and we can feel it and we can taste it and we can we can experience it. And the absence of culture or your positive culture is also very tangible. But when you're actually asked to define, well, what are each of those elements? That's, you know, that's that's a lot more difficult because it's so multifactorial. There are so many moving bits 
that go into creating that strong culture, that it's kind of, you know, how much of one component is enough and where are the breaking points? And that's almost an impossible question to answer until, you know, it's you're faced with it and you need to make those decisions. And, you know, that's what makes directorship so interesting and difficult and challenging, doesn't it? Beautiful. Thanks, Rivka. And thank you, both Carolyn and Serena, for that question. Nairi, you're up next and you've got a couple of questions in there. So the one that's upvoted next is the one about the potential negative optics. So can I get you to introduce yourself, Nairi, and to ask that question? I'm Nairi Anderson and um, I sit on a board with Rivka and I work in the healthcare and mental health space predominantly. So my question is around managing optics or relationships with major funding bodies. And I know one of your merger attempts you talked to that being the main one where you went out and told the public about it. And I'm wondering about the others and if they were kept pretty quiet, whether you kept them from your, for example, the Department of Health is a classic example. And if you did alert the department, how you manage those optics around multiple attempts at mergers with that funding body? Yeah, again, thanks, Nari. Uh, a great question again. So certainly the collaboration with the major funding partner, that was transparent in every single situation. And they were very supportive of the why. Why do we want to do this? So certainly the state uh, health department was kind of going, yay, this is actually what you need to do. Uh, they absolutely validated our concern that over the longer term, not immediately, so at no time during the merger process those many years, were there any direct viability concerns for the organisation, which is probably another point that needs to be made, that if you have these conversations at the time where your finances are looking dire, you're in a totally different world to what we were contemplating. So we were well ahead of the game at saying, we actually see this threat as being a longer term threat that we need to do something about rather than, you know, we have a fire in the house and, and we need to solve this now. So that's kind of where we were coming from. And so the discussions with the Department of Health were very positive and they were kept informed every step along the way. And so uh, they provided support and guidance and assistance there. So really no issues with any of that. But they also sort of helped to see that some of the funding streams could be risked uh, with some of the merger attempts as well. So there were particular funding programs that were unique that could have been threatened by proceeding with a, a merger, and that was of material interest to us. And that absolutely was very much part of why we needed to be very careful about actually making that decision, because it could have had a, an existential threat from both sides of the equation, and, and that really wouldn't have been a good outcome at all. In terms of the messaging to the public, there were marketplace chats, we had community town hall meetings to explain mostly the why. Why are we doing this? Why is this important? Remember too, of course, that a large part of the community would have been part of our membership as well. So that was part of the knowledge of we need 75% approval from our membership 
to do anything at all. So the, the messaging was actually really, really important. So they had been on you know, quite a long journey too in terms of understanding that something would need to happen at some stage to ensure we could continue to deliver services well into the future. And, you know, that was a good thing. I don't think that I, I regret any of that. But with the explanation and the why, you've kind of let the cat out of the bag. And, you know, you can't possibly, you know, have that kind of public messaging without your staff becoming aware of what you're doing too. So it's where do you take that messaging first and, and how do you go about that? And I think, you know, there is a delineation between having a general conversation of what you are contemplating versus having a detailed conversation about the who and where are you at in that process. So I think you can still kind of work more under stealth in terms of protecting individual organisations and still be transparent about your compelling why story. So that was good. And multiple meetings that we had with different stakeholder groups, staff meetings and the like. So again, that whole communications plan ahead of the merger, as well as after, was absolutely massive. And again, you know, the resourcing that goes along with that is really intense and, and needs to be kept in mind. Thanks, Rivka. Oh, I'm keeping an eye on the time. Okay, I'm going to do very briefly. Karen, over to you. Okay. I'm Karen. I'm the CEO at Red Nose. I'm based in Melbourne. I sit on a number of national and international advisory boards. And we went through a, a merge with a smaller organisation back in 2020. So all of what you said resonates really well. I guess my question, and it came up in a conversation that I had this week in flagging a potential merge, was the words, Karen, let's not kid ourselves, this is not a merge, it's a takeover. And so I'm just really curious, we use the word merge because it's gentle, you know, it's collaborative, et cetera. But in a lot of cases where you have one organisation or health service, et cetera, that's larger and one smaller, it is a takeover of sorts and the complexity therefore involved in corporate identity and branding. See if you can deal with that in one minute, Rivka. <laughs> Yeah, look, I'm going to give it my best to to be brief about that. The reality of it, it is really a takeover because that's the the mechanics of what's actually happening, and it is also, uh, I guess, determined by how physically and from a, a legal perspective that union actually takes place. And there are different ways that that can happen. Are you setting up a whole new entity that both become part of, or is it sort of more of that traditional takeover where one is enveloped uh, into the other, which is certainly what happened, you know, in the case of COBOL Community Health. And I think, you know, some of the protective factors there are around what is a new entity? How is it going to operate? What is it going to look like? Because that's going to give you a much better insight into, you know, how that's going to feel for staff, what's going to be protected. How do you take care of that in terms of the merger uh, contract? You know, what, what are the, the non-negotiables that are going to go forward from that merged perspective? What, what does all of that look like? Um, but, you know, I think the, really, the reality is there that if you have that mismatch, especially in terms of size and, and revenue of an organisation, one partner is going to have a greater say 
in that. And I would certainly imagine that from the, the CEO perspective, an organization can only have one CEO. That's a big contemplation. And again, for us, that was not an issue because of that retirement for Margaret that we saw coming through. But for other organizations, these are going to be massive issues to be discussed. And it may be that neither CEO carries through in the new organization and you're starting fresh. It's all sort of, you know, part of that discussion there. But I think the reality is there that takeovers is possibly what sits behind it. We don't necessarily need that. Okay. I'm going to have to wind you up, Rivka. I'm really sorry, but we have five minutes to go. I'm so sorry, Karen. I'm so sorry, Rivka. I hate doing that, but I also know people have other things to do at nine. So I'm just going to move it along if I may. Folks, join me in thanking Rivka for all of her wonderful insights and the wisdom that she has shared about mergers. Thank you so much. It's the best way to start the day, I find anyway. So on with your days and I look forward to seeing you around the Take On Board community soon. Thanks all. Ciao. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women and gender diverse people together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd also really love it if you could do some of the other, well, podcast things. Share the podcast with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.